Welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals and items mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of part two of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, Graham Parsons. Before I pick up part two, a special shout out to some big supporters of the podcast, Dave and Carol Harrington and Jan and Rich Hegner. Hope you're overlooking the sound as you listen in. Now let's continue with part two of our story about Graham Parsons. Although the Byrds' attempt at country rock flopped, other musicians sensed a trend and attempted to pursue a similar sound. As a member of Buffalo Springfield, Richie Fiore achieved prominence with contemporaries Stephen Stills and Neil Young before the group imploded after only three albums. Fiore met Graham Parsons during the latter's Greenwich Village adventures, and he was aware of his country expertise. He decided to invite him to audition for what eventually became Poco, a band that enjoyed at least a decade of commercial popularity. But Graham squandered another golden opportunity, offending some of the other group members, especially Jim Messina, who found him arrogant and annoying. The audition went nowhere. This experience apparently instilled in Parsons that he would only be successful by forming his own band and calling the shots himself. He summed up his perspective with a quote that was neither introspective or self-effacing, but hilarious nevertheless. You can't go on as Billy, Buzzy, and Boppy without losing part of your mind. Unpredictably, when Graham began looking for musicians for his own group, he began speaking again with Chris Hillman. Although it angered the other band members, the timing of Graham's departure from the Birds seemed almost prescient, based on subsequent events. The group took tremendous criticism when they played to all-white crowds in South Africa, and attendance was sparse in any case. The promoters stiffed them on fees, and they returned to the States broke, with Roger McGuinn making personnel changes designed to reestablish his complete control. To Chris Hillman, Graham eventually appeared practically benign by comparison. Reunited, they scoured the L.A. Sessions scene and assembled a country-oriented roster that even included a pedal steel guitar player, the legendary Sneaky Pete Kleinow. Graham expropriated the Flying Burrito Brothers' name with the blessing of his former ISB mates who had left L.A. and had never signed a recording contract. His timing was good. A&M Records, recently created by Jerry Moss and Herb Alpert, Moss the executive who ran the company, and Alpert the musician whose top 40 instrumentals dominated the 60s singles charts for almost a decade, was looking to expand into more cutting-edge rock and roll 
and the burritos were exactly what they were looking for. Hillman and Graham almost blew it by demanding a large advance and other perks and attempted to play off A&M against Reprise, a much larger company and a division of Warner Brothers. In the end, Reprise passed, and A&M signed the act for much less than the original asking price. Perhaps this clean slate motivated both Graham and Chris Hillman to put their best foot forward. They rented a suburban house in the valley, in Reseda, far away from the distractions of the Sunset Strip. They spent most of their time writing songs for their first album and focusing on creativity. Even so, their time in the studio was difficult, with both musicians frequently either unprepared or unable to record anything worthwhile. Five drummers came and went during the album's creation, indicative of the band's instability. However, upon completion, everyone, including A&M management, had high hopes for the burrito's first effort. To help build the band's image as a new kind of country mixed with glamour, Parsons came up with the idea to get the legendary Hollywood tailor, Nudie Cohn, to decide suits for the band to wear on the cover. Nudie Cohn, born Nuta Kotlarienko in Kiev, Russia, was a unique individual in his own right, a tailor who designed the outrageous outfits sported by country and Western music stars of the 50s and 60s, and actors like Roy Rogers and John Wayne. Heavy on the bright-colored satin and rhinestones, perhaps Nudie's most famous creation was Elvis Presley's gold lame suit that even Elvis thought was so over-the-top he eventually refused to wear the pants. For the Flying Burrito Brothers album entitled The Gilded Palace of Sin, Nudie was especially imaginative. For Hillman Parsons and the two other band members, Kleinow and bassist Chris Etheridge, he designed four very different outfits— Kleino got a black velvet shirt and pants with a gold pterodactyl on the front and a T-Rex on the back. Etheridge had a white-colored jacket and pants embroidered liberally with roses. Chris Hillman's outfit was neon blue, festooned with peacocks, and a blazing sun on the back of his jacket. Graham Parsons' suit was white, flames paralleling his bell-bottom pants, poppies on both pants pockets. Red poppies are everywhere on the jacket the torso emblazoned with marijuana leaves. The sleeves feature identifiable pharmaceuticals, including two-in-alls and second-alls and even a sugar cube. Typically contradictory, the back features a large red crucifix with circular shafts of yellow and blue emanating from its center. Today, this remarkable garment hangs in the Country Music Hall of Fame. Whatever discipline that drove Parsons and Hillman to compose the music that appeared on their first album completely disappeared once they had to perform live. Most observers of their early L.A. club dates described them as under-rehearsed, sloppy, and with some members frequently Graham under the influence. The band did themselves no favors when they appeared at the Whiskey, performing so poorly that the upper echelon of A&M walked out in disgust in the middle of the burrito's performance. Because he didn't like to fly, Graham convinced the record company to underwrite a tour with transportation via railroad, getting the group to its first stop, Chicago. The band got its own railroad car and assigned compartments, Phil Kaufman along to handle logistics. His attempts to moderate substance consumption met with mixed success. The band held it together through Chicago and Boston, but then a snowstorm stranded them, shutting down both train and air travel to New York, Kaufman unable to devise a plan B. In an every-man-for-himself fiasco, each band member attempted to get to the city on their own, one musician so lost that he showed up a full day after the show was supposed to go on. 
If upper management had been concerned at the whiskey, they were now downright outraged, much of the rock media having been summoned to the New York venue through a major publicity initiative, but the show was abruptly canceled. The band rebounded with some positive performances in Philadelphia, but by then the record company had written them off as a bad investment without a future. The Gilded Palace of Sin was released in February 1969, and despite some high-profile critical reviews, stiffed, selling about 40,000 copies total. For fans of rock and roll, the sound was too country. For those who liked traditional country, it wasn't country enough. Instead of buckling down after this disappointment, the group continued their unfocused partying ways, Parsons perhaps the worst malefactor. Emerging from the isolation of the San Fernando Valley, Hillman and Graham first rented a house in Nichols Canyon above Hollywood, and then another location in Beverly Glen, dwellings comically designated as Burrito Manor. Eventually, they split up, Hillman heading to Venice and Graham checking into one of the apartments at the Chateau Marmont. This was long before this residence morphed into the ridiculously expensive jet-set chic location that it is today. Seating and falling apart like central Hollywood itself, rooms were still less than $30 a night, and Graham wound up in one of the bungalows on the property. As Los Angeles and the Hollywood community were shocked by the murder of Sharon Tate and the rock world focused on an unprecedented rock concert at Woodstock, Parsons whiled away the rest of the summer, descending deeply into indolence and addiction. It was not until October and the arrival of the Rolling Stones back in town to mix their latest effort, Let It Bleed, that he emerged from this wasteful inactivity. Although he did contribute some ideas during the recording sessions, his bond with Keith Richards intensified over another common interest, heroin. On the road outside of his normal environment, Richards needed a connection, and Graham, with unlimited funds, had the reputation of access to the finest narcotics available. Whatever interest Graham had in his own music was completely subsumed by acting practically as a groupie around the Stones. When he began to emulate the Stones on stage in both wardrobe and theatrics, it especially irritated Chris Hillman. Mick Jagger also began to see Parsons as a detriment, another distraction that kept Keith Richards from focusing on the business of music. In spite of this, Keith's friendship endured, and he threw a birthday party for Graham in early November, at which Parsons met a 16-year-old aspiring actress and model named Gretchen Burrell, and they quickly became an item. Graham was snapped back a little closer to reality when the burrito's bass player quit, forcing a quick replacement by Bernie Ledden, eventually a member of the Eagles. There was some urgency to this reorganization. The Stones had recently concluded a summer tour and were being criticized for their excess and expensive ticket prices. In the afterglow of Woodstock, some San Francisco-based bands like the Jefferson Airplane and the Grateful Dead wanted to stage a similar event on the West Coast. To restore their public image, the Rolling Stones agreed to participate in what was billed as a free concert that was initially supposed to take place in San Francisco's Golden Gate Park. Graham's proximity to the Stones got the Flying Burrito Brothers added to the bill. Official San Francisco thought better of hundreds of thousands of people showing up at a downtown public park. Permits were denied. And when another venue, the Sears Point Raceway in Sonoma, also fell through over film rights, the site was again switched, only 48 hours before it was scheduled on Saturday, December 6, 1969. It would now take place at Altamont Speedway, 60 miles east of San Francisco, between Livermore and Tracy, California. 
The lack of preparation included a stage that was only four feet high and easily accessible to any member of the audience. Although it has never been firmly established as to who exactly made the decision to appoint several local chapters of the Hells Angels as the chief security presence for the concert, it appears they were paid with $500 worth of beer that they could continue to consume as long as they kept the audience from climbing on stage. Other sanitary facilities, concessions, backstage security, fencing, and traffic coordination were minimal or non-existent. An estimated 300,000 people showed up for the event, most having to walk along the nearest highway to gain access. Since Sneaky Pete famously did not do drugs or drink, he was assigned to drive the other band members to the gig. Only hours before their scheduled appearance, the band came to a dead stop with two lanes of cars completely motionless and bumper to bumper. An attempt to drive on the shoulder resulted in a crash into someone else with the same idea. Dozens of Hell's Angels were also zooming by in the breakdown lane, and Parsons, dressed in satin pants and a scarf, managed to convince one of them that he was with the Stones. He jumped on the Angels' motorcycle and reluctantly convinced everyone else to do the same thing. The Angels proceeded to drive them right up to the edge of the stage, where they parked their bikes. Along the way, they scattered anyone in their path, literally riding over blankets that provided the only seating. The concert started off with Santana, and it was early enough that things remained relatively orderly. But by the time the Jefferson Airplane got on the stage, the Angels were well into intoxication and increasingly irritated by a crowd that surged toward an unprotected stage. Fights began, and the Angels attacked anyone that attempted to restrain or confront them, including the airplane's Marty Ballin, who was knocked unconscious when he attempted to leave the stage to intervene in a fistfight. Armed with pool cues and motorcycle chains, the Angels were met with a crowd that had none of the peace and love restraint that characterized Woodstock. Because their music was upbeat and soothing, the Burrito Brothers set is remembered as the calmest part of the day. But the tension returned when Crosby, Stills, and Nash took the stage, and chaos descended when the Grateful Dead refused to play after hearing about the Marty Ballin incident and observing the antics of the Angels, who were now especially incensed as crowd-goers were inevitably tipping over their motorcycles, idiotically parked in front of the stage. The Dead's refusal meant that the gap after Crosby, Stills, and Nash and the Stones was two hours, the Stones wanting to wait until after sunset to make their filmed appearance ever more dramatic. They signed a deal for a concert movie and instead got a filmed record of one of the most disturbing moments of the 60s. Security was so lax that when Jagger arrived on scene and got out of his helicopter, he was punched in the face by a concert goer who merely walked by the token guards who were present. During the performance, the band had to stop on numerous occasions, the most ominous when during Sympathy for the Devil, an 18-year-old was stabbed by an angel. Despite other concert goers who attempted to get him medical attention, he bled to death from several serious wounds. The Stones immediately fled following their set, Graham Parsons able to get one of the last seats on their helicopter out of Dodge. Other band members weren't so fortunate. They had to hitchhike back to San Francisco. The Stones went back to Europe. Graham returned to the mundane world of a second-tier rock band appearing in out-of-the-way clubs and high schools. In a last-ditch attempt to hold things together, Chris Hillman organized a second Burrito Brothers album. The group had run up a $100,000 debit against their A&M royalty account, essentially money advanced to the band that got spent on railroad cars, expensive hotels, and even more expensive narcotics. 
Hillman at least wanted to take a shot at regaining momentum. But the record company was not encouraging, and Graham was either disinterested or passive-aggressive. One remarkable song emerged from this chaos and is added to the Graham Parsons enigma. In their countless jam sessions, Parsons and Keith Richards fooled with words and a melody that ultimately became the song Wild Horses. Desperate for any interesting material, Graham got permission to record this music a full year before the Stones released it on their album, Sticky Fingers. Over time, the urban legend has grown that Parsons actually wrote the song, especially as the lyrics have much more relation to his state of mind and future than anything relative to the Rolling Stones. A journal in which Graham Parsons recorded cartoons, drawings, set lists, and lyrics has three different versions of Wild Horses, complete with chord progressions. Officially, the song is attributed to Jagger Richards, but a scenario in which Graham, not caring about money and always eager to please, especially Keith Richards, might have agreed to relinquish any ownership is not hard to believe. What difference did it make? It was only one song, and Graham had dozens of them. Unfortunately, the album did not even achieve the critical acclaim of the band's first effort, and even Wild Horses generated little enthusiasm at the time of its Parsons release. The lack of enthusiasm is evident even from the album cover, Stale Burritos, a photo of the band superimposed in white coveralls. To top it off in May of 1970, Parsons broke his leg and smacked his head at a motorcycle accident that required stitches. At the end of June, he showed up late and not ready to perform at a small club date in the San Fernando Valley. Chris Hillman had had enough. He fired Graham on the spot. Parsons was completely disinterested at that point and secretly probably welcomed the development. With a bad reputation in L.A., Parsons decided that a change of scenery might help out. The Rolling Stones were advised by their accountant that they needed to leave Britain in early 1971 or else be subjected to the onerous income tax rate of as high as 93% of their income. Before they left, they performed in small venues without the arena rock attitude and logistics as a kind of farewell to their native country. Graham and Gretchen Burrell joined the tour, and when the Stones' entourage then headed for the south of France, they stayed behind in London, attempting to get something going with the brand new Rolling Stones record company. When that went nowhere, Graham called Keith to ask if he could crash with him on the French Riviera. The Stones guitarist had plenty of room. He was renting a seaside estate known as Nelcott, a mansion in Villefranche-sur-Mer along the Côte d'Azur. Although all of the Stones were situated nearby, Keith's place was the band's headquarters while they recorded their next album, Exile on Main Street. That made sense, as it was much more likely that he would be present for recording sessions if he merely had to walk down to the basement where the band had set up its makeshift recording studio. The Nelcott scene was already a magnet for the Stones' entourage, jet-setters, drug dealers, and hangers-on of all shapes and sizes. With Mickoff in Paris preoccupied with his recent bride, Nicaraguan Bianca Moreno de Macias, it was up to Keith to get the sessions organized and productive, which meant a schedule of sleeping until early afternoon and rehearsing and recording until daylight. Although they would still jam on an impromptu basis, once Keith Richards and the band got down to business and started working, Graham was not included. He spent most of his time doing drugs and hanging out, the small beach town not exactly walking distance to any other entertainment. Since women in the Stones' hierarchy were merely sex objects to be seen and not heard, Gretchen was even more bored and spent most of her time in conflict with Graham. 
Graham's intake of narcotics was becoming so alarming that even Keith was getting worried. Eventually, the excesses of Nelcott became evident even to Richards, when some of the group's guitars and equipment were stolen in broad daylight while many of the intoxicated inhabitants were in a nearby room watching television, it was a final straw. Mick Jagger also got involved and provided some adult supervision. It was agreed that the entourage needed to be pared down and Graham would have to go. The Stones even cut off access to any London residences. Graham had no choice but to head back to Los Angeles. Later, even when the Stones came to Los Angeles to mix Exile and Main Street, not only was there no talk of a record deal or Keith producing a Graham solo effort, Richards never even contacted him at all. Graham clearly now persona non grata in the Stones' Party Eden. Perhaps to shore up any close relationships he still maintained, he and Gretchen decided to get married at an event in New Orleans orchestrated by his stepfather, None of his L.A. friends attended the wedding on September 13, 1971. Parsons at this point was so misdirected that after the marriage, he traveled with the Flying Burrito Brothers merely as a spectator. One good thing that did come out of this interaction was the discovery of Emmy Lou Harris, who was then an unknown playing cover tunes in the Washington, D.C. area. Chris Hillman told Graham about her, and then Graham decided that a classical duet on a solo album was the perfect concept for his next record. He actually got Warner Brothers to give him a two-album deal. Two releases by two other entities also greatly motivated Graham to get his act together. One was Exile on Main Street, which was both popular and cool, and the other was the Eagles' debut album, which not only had a country rock feel, it also had former burrito Bernie Ledden as a member of the band. The watered-down sounds of songs like Peaceful Easy Feeling and Take It Easy were just shallow enough to be wildly successful. Graham could only shake his head and resolve to do better. For his first solo album, he came up with the idea of hiring Elvis Presley's Las Vegas backing band, which he did, paying musicians like Glenn D. Harden and James Burton out of his own pocket when Warner Brothers refused their steep rates. Much of the record consists of duets with Emmylou Harris, with rehearsals taking place at Phil Kaufman's house, a surreal place furnished with strange antiques and vintage junk. The process was predictably slow-moving. Eventually, Graham got it together and got the album recorded, called GP with a cover photo of Graham sitting in the lobby of the Chateau Mormont. The album's release prompted kind words from the critics, but not much of a popular reaction. In-house, Warner branded it as a country album, and the subsequent tour proceeded with what has been described as the worst tour bus ever without any real sleeping accommodations. Graham couldn't afford the Elvis musicians for the tour, and the assembled band was so weak that the lead guitar player was fired after one show. Gretchen was also along, ensuring that everyone was miserable, especially her husband. Kaufman frequently had to separate the two, husband and wife sitting as far away as possible. But there were high points. Jock Bartley, who eventually became part of the successful group Firefall, was a competent replacement. In Houston, Emmy Lou Harris met and performed with Linda Ronstadt for the first time. On Long Island, her performance on radio station WLIR, released in 1983 as a live album of great quality that holds up well almost 50 years later. But it was the same story for the album. Positive reviews, lackluster sales. Graham and Gretchen moved out of the Chateau Marmont and into a house in Laurel Canyon. Graham spent time rehearsing with Emmylou Harris for a brief East Coast concert tour that was potentially a warm-up for a longer, later tour of the duo backed by Clarence White, former Birds drummer Gene Parsons, 
and former burritos Chris Etheridge, Graham, and Emmy Lou sang what was becoming the foundation of their performances. Love Hurts, Hickory Wind, We'll Sweep Out the Ashes in the Morning, and Streets of Baltimore. Just as things were starting to look up in July, Graham's Laurel Canyon house burned to the ground in a fire, possibly started by Gretchen, who carelessly fell asleep with a lit cigarette, but truthfully could have easily been ignited by Graham. They briefly lived in the Chateau Marmont before deciding to split up. Graham moved to the guest cottage behind Phil Kaufman's house, probably intent on at least an attempt at sobriety before heading back to the studio to record his second solo album. Kathy Fenton, Kaufman's live-in girlfriend, and Kaufman deliberately hid Graham's stash and tried to get him to cut back. He stayed reasonably together, and the album entitled Grievous Angel came together quickly. It would feature a recorded version of a duet of Love Hurts with Emmy Lou, as well as the final recording of Graham's career, In My Hour of Darkness, with backing vocals by Linda Ronstadt. While the completion of the album was a positive event, another catastrophe struck when the well-liked and respected Clarence White was run over and killed by a drunk driver while White was unloading musical equipment from his car. It was at White's funeral in a Catholic church in Palmdale that Parsons and Kaufman agreed to their pact, vowing that whoever went first, the other would provide a proper send-off at Joshua Tree. Graham was intent on divorcing Gretchen and also assigned Kaufman the task of drawing up the papers and getting her to sign off on an agreement. With a lot on his mind and no longer constricted by recording sessions, Graham Parsons returned to hard narcotics and decided to head for a familiar sanctuary, Joshua Tree. He convinced Margaret Fisher, a recent companion and former high school classmate living in San Francisco, to accompany him. Michael Martin, a roadie during the recent tour, and his girlfriend, Dale McElroy, would also be there, ostensibly to babysit Graham and make sure he didn't get too out of control. One unconfirmed rumor was that Graham didn't want to be in town when Kaufman served the papers on September 20th. Graham and his group checked into the Joshua Tree Inn on September 17, 1973. In the chaos of the next few days, the papers never got served. Graham Parsons died six weeks short of his 27th birthday, an event that many anticipated well in advance. While some in the Los Angeles rock and roll community respected Phil Kaufman's bizarre stunt, Graham's relatives were both angry and appalled. They pressed the LAPD to find and punish the grave robbers. Since just about every industry person in the city knew who did it, Kaufman and Martin eventually turned themselves in. But even the judge who caught the case seemed to have an understanding that Graham was hell-bent on his own self-destruction. It also helped that the prosecutors weren't even sure how to charge the two men. At the time, a body had no legal value, so stealing it wasn't a crime. It turned out that legally the coffin was more valuable than Graham. The judge fined the two $708 in damages, the price of the casket, and $300 apiece for the theft itself. To pay the fines, Kaufman threw a legendary party in his backyard billed as the Kaufman's Coffin Caper Concert to pay off this obligation. Perhaps the judge had an awareness of the backstory surrounding Graham's transportation to New Orleans. His stepfather, Bob Parsons, probably didn't think much of his stepson's musical legacy at the time, but there was still a substantial amount of money left in Graham's trust. Somehow, Parsons came to the legal conclusion that if Graham was buried in Louisiana, it would bolster his legal claim to Graham's estate based on the state's Napoleonic Code. 
What was left of Graham's charred remains were buried in the -the out-of-the-way industrial park suburb of Metairie, Louisiana. Realistically, this maneuver was completely fruitless. Although Gretchen Parsons was on thin ice, officially she was still Graham's wife. And as Parsons died without a will, California law was quite clear that the spouse is the primary beneficiary in such a situation. It wouldn't have done Bob Parsons much good in any case. He died of cirrhosis of the liver approximately a year after Graham's death. In January 1974, Warner Reprise released Grievous Angel, the album recorded in mid-1973. It would only reach 195 on the Billboard charts and quickly fade out of view. Gretchen Parsons, jealous about her former husband's tight but platonic relationship with Emmylou Harris, removed her from the cover and replaced her with a headshot of Graham by himself on a field of solid aqua. Emmylou was reduced to a credit on the back cover. Gretchen eventually married Bob Carpenter, a member of the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band. Today she lives an obscure life, made more comfortable by the popularity of Graham's music, far more popular today than when it was released. Graham's younger sister, Avis, provided perhaps the most shocking evidence that the Snively Parsons family unit was plagued by some terrible dark cloud. In a tragic boating accident in coastal Virginia in 1993, she and her teenage daughter were killed when her craft collided in the dark with a much larger vessel. Graham's daughter, Polly, five years old at the time of his death, battled addiction and mental issues for much of her life. Today, she is involved with dispensing drug and alcohol abuse counseling and treatment. In his own lifetime, Graham Parsons never enjoyed the fame and profile that he aspired to from a young age. Unencumbered by the mundane demands of having to make a living, he faced little consequence from occupational failure, intoxication, and childlike irresponsibility. His album sales were minimal, and he received only one record company royalty check in his lifetime when Warner Brothers included a Joan Baez rendition of a Parsons composition on a Woodstock compilation. Even his death fell just short of the notorious 27 Club, the group of high-profile musicians who have died prematurely at that age. Nevertheless, many far more famous and wealthier artists never achieved the exceptional quality of much of the Graham Parsons catalog. His influence can be heard and acknowledged every day in the music of the Rolling Stones, the Grateful Dead, the Eagles, Tom Petty, Emmylou Harris, Linda Ronstadt, Jackson Brown, the Birds, Bob Dylan, and many other lower-profile entities. In a life handicapped by bad influences, bad choices, and just bad luck, Graham Parsons never did become a star. Instead, he remained merely star-crossed. Thank you for listening to part two of this podcast about Graham Parsons. Much of the information for this podcast came from the books 20,000 Roads by David Meyer and Hickory Wind by Ben Fong Torres. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical, and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. For this episode especially, please check out the legendary Graham Parsons nudie suit mentioned during the show. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Also rate us on iTunes, and if you have the time, leave a brief review. 
A link is provided at the website.